This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. Managing chronic pain with medical cannabis is becoming a treatment of choice as the opioid crisis grows, and it will be a hot topic at this year's Moses Nimer's Idea City. I speak with an expert in pain management. And the newly elected government has promised to build tens of thousands of long-term care beds to solve the crisis. One of our foremost geriatricians says this is the wrong way to go. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. This victory belongs to you. The new majority PC government of Doug Ford will include 81-year-old Raymond Cho, a man who personifies a new vision of aging. He's been a progressive conservative MPP since September 2016 when he won a by-election in Scarborough Rouge River. Incidentally, the co-manager of that campaign was none other than Doug Ford. This week, two famous Zoomers from the world of entertainment and fashion died by suicide. Celebrity chef Anthony Bourdain was found dead in his hotel room in France at the age of 61. So many of the great meals of my life have been enjoyed. Sitting in the street, eating something out of a bowl, and I'm not exactly sure what it is. So delicious. I feel like an animal. Where have you been all my life? That's a clip from his award-winning series, Parts Unknown, where he brilliantly explored cuisine and culture. He was very open about his struggles with addiction. Several days earlier, designer Kate Spade, well-known for her whimsical handbags and accessories, took her own life at 55. More evidence this week that strokes affect women differently than men. A report by the Heart and Stroke Foundation shows that one-third more women die from stroke than men, and 60% are less likely to regain their independence afterwards. Less than half of stroke patients in rehab programs are women, and they end up in long-term care more than men after a stroke. Here's a deal signed with a kiss and an I do. Two longtime friends made good on their deal to marry each other at 50 if still single. High school sweethearts Kimberly Dean and Ron Palmer tied the knot this week in Minnesota, 37 years after dating in high school. The pair, aged 51 and 54, remained friends through the years and rekindled their relationship after both were divorced. The last living munchkin from the 1939 classic, The Wizard of Oz, has died at 98. Jerry Marin, who was suffering from dementia, died last week at a San Diego nursing home. Marin played a member of the Lollipop Guild in Oz, the group that welcomes Dorothy and her crew to Munchkinland. We wish to welcome you to Munchkinland. 
Marin said that making the film was the greatest fun he ever had in his life. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. The public inquiry into the safety and security of residents in long-term care has begun in St. Thomas. Its focus is on how the system allowed serial killer nurse Elizabeth Wetlaufer to continue her murderous spree until she confessed. It will be up to Ontario's new PC majority government to implement a fix. And one of our foremost geriatric experts, Dr. Samir Sinha, says they may be on the wrong track. What I hear broadly is this is a story in particular of a troubled individual working in a system that has challenges recruiting and retaining good qualified staff. And so, you know, it raises the broader issues for me as to how do we reflect on this important sector in terms of the work it does? How well do we pay the staff? How well do we train staff to come into the sector? Because this is a very important area of care, but it's care that focuses on frail older people. And sometimes we don't value those people as much as we would value, say, young children in our society. This nurse, Elizabeth Wetlaufer, she had, I believe, 134 complaints against her. So how could you even say it fell through the cracks? A broader theme that's coming out here is for me is that we first of all don't actually mandate training on geriatrics in our schools of nursing you know to the same level as we do pediatrics or other areas of care even though this is where most nurses will spend their time and this is also for doctors and other professionals so therefore we are actually trying to recruit people into an area of care that pays less than a nurse would get paid in a hospital and without the skills of how to care for people in long-term care homes but it's hard to attract people Um, to an area, you know, when you say, well, we want you to work just as hard as you would in a hospital, but we're going to pay you at least 20% less. One of the most disturbing aspects for me uh, was the fact that she was allowed and able to keep working because after she was finally fired, and this after many, many complaints, her union grieved her firing And they negotiated a letter which hid the reasons for her firing, which said basically that she left to pursue other opportunities, gave her damages of $2,000. What do you make of that? I always think about how do we make sure our frontline healthcare professionals are supported, especially when the requirements in our long-term care legislation are that we have to have only one nurse on staff at any time in a long-term care home. And you're the only nurse in a home that might be 500 beds. That's a lot of pressure on an individual. So how well are we supporting these folks in the first place? I think there's a balance between defending an employee's rights to have a respectful and trusting workplace. But the question is, how far and how much do you defend when there may be things that have occurred? And this is not just within healthcare. This happens in education and a whole bunch of other areas. What is the role of the union? Is the union's role to defend at all costs? Or is the union's role to, again, make sure that in this environment that the care of older and frail patients in particular is being held to the highest standards? And I think it really begs the question as to, are we really valuing the need needs of older adults as much as we would, and would this have happened in a place where we were caring for younger people? I'd like to turn now to the solution. We will have a new government. All three of the parties have 
proposed solutions to the crisis in long-term care, and they all involve more long-term care beds. You've said that that's not necessarily the right way to go. It's their solution to what we call hallway medicine. So hospitals that are full of mostly older people who are trying to get home or go elsewhere. And my comments that I put in the newspaper has been basically that I think sometimes this is an old and actually a a knee-jerk response saying we've got all these people who are just wanting to go somewhere else. And so if we just build beds, you know, maybe that's where we can put them all. Most, if you ask anybody where they would like to end up, you know, I don't think any of the listeners or any of us would aspire to end up in a long-term care home. We also know that from hospitals, we tend to prematurely institutionalize people into nursing home beds because it's easier to do that than sometimes get everybody together and think about what we could rally together in the community to help return a person home. And sometimes from a home care standpoint, if we don't have the right mix of home and community care services available, that just becomes the tipping point between a person staying independent in their home and going into long-term care. Care. So we know of great examples in other countries where they don't have hallway medicine because when they started closing hospital beds years ago, they actually really bolstered their home and community care system. I'm not saying that we won't need new long-term care beds down the road, but with each of the three main parties pledging to build 30,000 new beds in the next 10 years, and even many of the associations saying we couldn't even build that if we tried, and none of them are going to come online within the next few years anyways. Exactly. solve the problem problem that we have today. And it also comes back to the point is when you underpay, because I've made it very clear that expanding home care can't be done for minimum wage, where it's actually people get paid better wages with potentially, I would say, easier work to pour a cup of coffee than it is to bathe an older person who's demented and may have behaviors. We have to value these workers. We have to pay them reasonably. Otherwise, we start to easily understand why the turnover in our home care and long-term care workforce is upwards of 50% a year. Every government says we've got to beef up home care. Everybody knows it's much cheaper than hospital care and better. Have you pinpointed the problem? We have to remember that home care is about 6% of our current overall health care budget, right? We spend far more on hospitals, far more on doctors. We spend even more money still on long-term care nursing home care for about 77,000 people than we do for the 700,000 people who are currently receiving home and community care. So home care has actually been, under my guidance, the fastest growing part of the Ontario health care budget but it still remains a fraction of our overall budget of what we spend in other areas. So recently hospitals got an announcement of a big infusion of financing. And, you know, yes, our hospitals did need some further funding after four years of 0% increases. But that one-year increase that they received, if you will, you know, of $800 million is far more than the $250 million we are still increasing our annual home care budget by on an annual basis. So we have to look at the overall perspective of if we really, really want to have end hallway medicine, um, if we really want to have a strong home and community care sector, we really have to put our money where our mouth is and make these real and meaningful investments. But building 30,000 new beds is a lot of money in the wrong place over a long period of time. I think those investments, just putting them in home care, could get us significantly further where we need to be. Okay. Thank you very much, Dr. Samir Sinha. An absolute pleasure, Libby. 
Dr. Samir Sinha is Director of Geriatrics at the Sinai Health System and an advisor to the government on its senior strategy. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Weekend Review. Coming up, medical cannabis is being recognized as an alternative to opioids when it comes to pain management. You're listening to the Zoomer Weekend Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. There's an opioid crisis in Canada, but the very medication meant to help patients is not only making the pain worse, in some cases, it's killing them. Medical cannabis is starting to be recognized as a safer alternative. I sat down with Dr. Peter Bletcher, an expert in pain management, ahead of his presentation at this year's Idea City. Like a lot of my colleagues in the early 2000s, when I got into pain management, we were at the height of the era when we were being told that opiates were sort of going to cure all the ills with respect to pain management. And to some extent, I, like many of my colleagues, drank some of that Kool-Aid and prescribed opiates for, for chronic pain. And fortunately, uh, fairly early on, I'd like to say, I started noticing that this was probably not a, a very good long-term strategy. And I became concerned that what I was seeing was that this very medication that was meant to help patients um, after a long period of time, in fact, could, could end up you know, harming them and, and uh, heightening their pain, doing the very opposite. It's called opioid-induced hyperalgesia, or OIH. So what did you find when you started prescribing cannabis? I started seeing my ability to get patients off opiates using cannabinoids. Okay, so now medical cannabis is legal, mm-hmm. regular cannabis will soon be legal. I hear from a lot of patients who say, you know, I'd love to have medical cannabis, but it's not covered. It's expensive. I can't afford it. So therefore, I will use opioids. And this, of course, is a problem. I mean, uh, you know, coverage is a complex issue. I'm certainly sensitive to that. I mean, I, of course, deal with a lot of patients who don't necessarily have a lot of financial means. Um, the problem is, of course, that the regular medical channels, the, the payers are reluctant to reimburse for cannabis in a framework or in a scenario where they feel that it's still partly because it's counterculture, but I think also because there is still a, a lack of evidence. And when I say lack of evidence, I mean big clinical trials, clinical studies that, that typically as, as empirically trained physicians we expect. But I think it's important to also acknowledge that the evidence for opiate use in long-term pain is also virtually entirely absent. They're great for acute pain, but when you've got cannabinoids, which virtually are unable to kill someone, replacing a drug or a series of drugs like benzodiazepines, sedatives, sleep medications that people are overdosing on, I think it behooves us to continue to investigate this when when a lot of observational data are indicating uh, pretty remarkable things. You have a groundbreaking deal with the union for covering cannabis. The company that I'm associated with, Starseed Medicinal, has as our major investor and partner, Layuna Labor's International Union of North America. And that's the largest construction union in Canada with about 120,000 members and, and families and other beneficiaries, retirees, over well over 300,000. And 
of course, because they're construction workers, they do a lot of heavy physical labor. They they over-index for chronic pain, and and sadly, um, as a consequence of that, they also will probably over-index for opiate use and and some degree misuse and abuse. And uh, the leadership of Layuna, Joe Mancinelli, and and others, I frankly I think were incredibly brave to stand up. Uh, this is now a number of years ago. It almost seems not even a big deal now in the light of of the recreational market opening. But when they agreed to really buy in to the conviction that cannabinoids could help curb some of the massive opiate crisis going on and improve their quality of life and manage their pain better, I found that a really interesting opportunity where they're going to have this as a broadly funded benefit for for numerous indications, including chronic pain, uh, which will really allow us to do this in a very measured and respectful way where we want to introduce this and hopefully be able to uh, supplant some of the opiate use. It involves each local's management negotiating with their benefit provider to get it on the benefit plan. When I get asked, well, what are you going to do if someone shows up to work stoned? I say, well, what do you do right now if someone shows up drunk? Or what do you do right now if someone shows up having crushed Percocets in the parking lot before work that frankly are covered on your benefit plan? Or if they're taking too much fentanyl that's also covered on your benefit plan, are you testing for that? And then typically when I speak to plan providers, they kind of go silent because there's a little bit of a double standard here. There tends to be much less tolerance with cannabinoids, and we absolutely plan on restricting the brands and formulations of cannabis available in the work environment to really manage the sedation and uh, the somnolent formulations. As a societal problem, alcohol certainly is a much bigger problem than cannabis. But what I really want to reinforce is people who use cannabis for medicine are literally doing the opposite. They're looking to use as little as possible as they need to manage their symptoms without getting stoned. And it's really that differentiation and that conflation that I am looking forward to getting rid of. We're looking to develop new formulations, new delivery mechanisms um, that are going to be evidence-based, that are having a specific dosing that, that hopefully physicians can buy into so we can help manage this uh, terrible opiate crisis that's uh, in front of us. Okay, Dr. Peter Bletcher, thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me, Libby. That was Dr. Peter Bletcher, Chief Medical Officer of Starseed Medicinal. He's speaking at the 2018 edition of Moses Nimer's Idea City. The three-day event begins June 20th. For more information, go to ideacity.ca. I'm Libby Nimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, there's nothing unusual about an iconic singer who turns 78 this week. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. It's time for your international art state book tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. Here's Jane Brown. A once-in-a-generation exhibition dedicated to Lord of the Rings author J.R.R. Tolkien has opened at Oxford University in England. At the Smithsonian in Washington, the pistols used in the 1804 duel between Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr are on display as part of a retrospective of the life and career of the first U.S. Treasury Secretary. In Atlanta... The High Museum of Art is the premier American venue for Winnie the Pooh exploring a classic. And for fans of the legendary painter, Picasso's Kitchen is a glimpse of art combined with cuisine at the Picasso Museum in Barcelona. I'm Jane Brown, and that's the International Arts Datebook. 
Tom Jones celebrated his 78th birthday this week. He's referred to as the voice because of his rich baritone voice. Born Thomas Jones Woodward on June 7, 1940, in a small town in Wales, Jones became the frontman of a Wales band called Tommy Scott and the Senators in the early 60s. Not long after, he was discovered by London-based manager Gordon Mills. His first single, Chills and Fever, was released in late 1964 and did not make any noise on the UK charts. But his follow-up single was a huge success. It hit the number one spot on the UK charts and has since become Tom Jones' signature song. Here it is, Tom Jones with It's Not Unusual. It's not unusual to be loved by anyone. That was Tom Jones with his signature tune, It's Not Unusual. Jones celebrated his 78th birthday this week. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Weekend Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. You've been listening to the Zoomer Weekend Review, produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Snymer. Produced by Christine Ross, Michelle Saunders, Paul Thomas, and Andre Lowy. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.